I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. As an adult, I've often found myself straddling two worlds. First, as an immigrant, growing up in India, then settling in Canada as an adult, never quite fitting in anywhere. I sound, quote-unquote, too white when I go to India. And in Canada, my accent, which is supposedly a mishmash of Canadian, British, and Indian, marks me as, quote-unquote, a foreigner and, quote-unquote, an outsider. The question that is so flippantly and often asked, so where are you from, still shores up the boundary of who belongs. But belonging isn't just about physical belonging, the actual being in a space. It is also a sense of being part of a community and a group of people. And belonging to somewhere, anywhere really, can be as painful as it is promising. Today we discuss belonging. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta and I'm joining you as I do every week from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. My hair is in a ponytail and I have on my set of headphones. They're black and they're over the year. Today I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt. It has a V-neck and it and it's kind of a a taupey pink is how Matthew McGurk, my videographer, described it. More earth tones than pink, he says. I'll leave it up to you to decide, and you can let me know in the comments down below what this actually looks like to you. But it's a nice, stretchy, comfy T-shirt uh, shirt uh, that I feel really snug in, ready to do this interview talking to someone that I've been delighted to welcome onto the program. Anahid Dashgard is the co-leader and founder of Anima Leadership, which is a leading inclusivity organization in Canada, and also the author of a new book. It's a fantastic set of essays called Bones of Belonging, which explores some of the intricacies of being uh, a racialized person, an immigrant in Canada. Anahid, hello and welcome to The Pulse. I am so delighted you could join me today. Oh, it's lovely to be here. You know, I've been trying to rack my brains as to where I might have met you. Sometimes you get that sense, right, that you've seen somebody before, you're scratching your head going, where have I met them? Where have I met them? And then when I realized that you were uh, the co-founder of Anima Leadership, that's when I realized that I've had your partner, Shaquille, on the show, I want to say a couple of years ago now. So it's really nice to have you come back in a manner of speaking to talk about the work of inclusion and to talk about uh, the challenges of being a person of color in Canada. Let's talk about your book, uh, Bones of Belonging. It's a fantastic set of essays, very punchy. Where does this idea come from? Oh, well, I love that question. So the whole title for the book is Bones of Belonging, Finding Wholeness in a White World. And I also, in my day-to-day work life, uh, I'm CEO of an equity and inclusion company, which I co-founded with my partner, Shaquille, who you interviewed. and in those that work, one of the biggest things that I see missing in this conversation toward really creating um, equity and equality in our societies is people understanding what this whole conversation is really about. And I see it, you know, and I think this is why we're in a very polarized moment around this topic where you have academics that, you know, have the theory and the 
politics around it that are, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing or, uh, academics and activists. And then you have the alt-right um, on the other side. And there's most people in the middle that I believe would be fully aligned with equity if they really got what we're talking about. So um, back to the book, stories, I think, reach people in a way that facts and statistics don't. It's my most, my, my biggest teacher. I go to books to learn and to understand and gain insight. And I wanted to write a series of stories and vignettes that would bring people behind the scenes to understand um, what does discrimination, particularly racial discrimination, look like, feel like, moment to moment? Uh, how can we bear witness? And most importantly, what can we do to um, shift things on a personal level in our day-to-day -day lives? And the feedback I've gotten so far has been rewarding because it has been from people, racialized folks, but also a lot of white folks that have said, um, wow, I really get it, or you really helped me understand what you know, what people are talking about when they use this particular word or, and, you know, it helped me understand how I can just do things a little bit differently. So in one of the essays in the book, you talk about your experience facilitating a training for a group of, I'm going to say largely white, not not all white, but predominantly white uh, caretaking staff at a school. And just before the training, the day before, there's an article that's come out about this training in a right-wing publication. So you're going into the space feeling pretty shaky. I wanted to ask you about some of the takeaways and some of the experiences from that particular training and what it taught you about facilitating uh, conversations about inclusion. Because some really interesting things start to happen in the room when people start to share their experiences and their firsthand accounts. Yeah, I love that question. I think that the um, chapter you're describing, just to set it up, is I was going into, like you said, work with a group of caretakers in a school board. And before that, there was this article published that um, I found out had been, you know, somebody inside the organization had contacted the newspaper um, person. And I was, you know, worried about facing um, a lot of resistance and even possibly personal attack. And instead, what I found was um, people, by the end of the day, putting their cards on the table, you know, talking very directly and openly about their concerns, doubts, hesitations with what, you know, quote unquote, political correctness, this whole equity conversation, why people of color are taking all the jobs. And... I think that's the only way we ever create change is when we can actually have those brave and honest conversations with one another. And what I find is that it's interesting, like the higher up people um, are in their organizations, the less permission people feel to actually ask those questions, even though I think that they have them. <laughs> so when I'm working with executive teams, the resistance comes out in much more sophisticated and passive aggressive ways. It's actually harder to respond to. And so learning for me with, with the caretaker staff was, oh, I went in feeling shaky and kind of nervous and afraid. And what happened was me realizing this is um, this level of honesty is refreshing and I can respond to it. And, and it was invigorating and exciting. And I came out wishing I had more time that I'm working with with other groups where it just takes so much longer to get people to that place where they feel like they can actually say what they're thinking. 
Because only what we're thinking can we actually shift it. And this is a big problem in racial justice is I feel like we just, we're playing these roles. It becomes like a game of like, um, you know, the, we, we adhere to scripts and when we're adhering to particular scripts, it's not real and we can't, we can't get to, it's harder to get to a level of realness or transformation or shift in thinking can actually happen. You know, one of the things I often say on air, and I've actually heard other people say here on air as well, when it comes to people with disabilities is uh, how important it is to empathize. Things like, well, you don't have a disability today, but you might have one down the road. Uh, so we're really drawing on this idea of empathy for somebody else and trying to translate your experiences of oppression onto other people's lived realities of, of, of having a disability. In that training that we were talking about, you hear from a lot of people about their firsthand accounts and their frustrations with how they get treated by their superiors. As one person who says, you know, I got called in to clean up someone's oatmeal, which they had spilled from their own breakfast. Somebody else says, you know, I had to go in and clean my principal's car. Like, they, the people are really angry. And yet, when you have towards the end of the of the workshop a discussion about racism, you've still got people saying things like, I don't like it that immigrants are coming in and taking my job. So how do you deal with the fact that people aren't always quick to make those connections and that the experience of one form of oppression doesn't necessarily translate into an understanding of another type of oppression? It's a really important question and I think the most misunderstood you know, for example, we see it in the feminist community, how many feminists have trouble aligning and supporting trans rights. So there's many examples of, you know, <laughs> my own experience of marginalization does not translate. Here's what we found from the years of doing this work is, um, and part of our approach, we do not talk about systemic oppression in the first couple sessions at all. It's really important to start where people are at and to get people to connect to their own felt experiences of exclusion. So at one point or another, everybody on the planet has experienced what it is like to not belong. Right. We know from neuroscience research that that is never a neutral experience. When we feel excluded, even in for short periods of time, you know, the, the, the reality is we tend to feel under threat. Um, you know, there's the strong emotion that comes with it. Everybody has some experience of that. And part of our methodology is getting people to connect to and remember um, that experience for themselves. And some people, it might be years back for, you know, being too tall for that semester in high school or having facial acne for that particular period of time. Um, and when people are able to articulate and connect to and remember their own experience of exclusion and have that validated, in other words, tell their own story and have it affirmed, we find that there's they're more easily able to empathize with the experiences of groups of people that experience exclusion on a regular basis. So in other words, creating um, equity literacy, bringing more people into, un, uh, you know, into becoming allies for addressing invisible systems of discrimination is an emotional literacy process. It is not cognitive. The understanding of the ide ideology and the analysis comes second. And this is what, you know, drives me nuts because so many people doing this work don't get it. It's not about throwing facts and statistics at people. That is important. But fundamentally, we need to 
help people go through an emotional journey, connecting people to what it feels like to not belong. I, I, you know, we're talking a bit about emotions here. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your emotions, particularly anger. And you talk a lot about the role that anger plays in your life and in your writing. Uh, you know, you, you, you clearly have some amount of anger in your expressed in your writings, uh, which stems from the exclusion of being a person of color and also the trauma of being relocated from Tehran at the age of six, this forced migration from Iran that you talk about in your writings. So what the then would you say is the role that anger plays in your life and in your writing? What is your relationship to anger? The longer we live our lives, I believe, the more we realize that answers to questions like this are just not, you know, (laughs) pithy, one little kind of sentence answers. Um, So with anger, I would say, I would say two things. One, the anger was an important survival emotion. So for many years, anger was a protective cloak. And looking back, I realized how much I needed it. Otherwise, I would have fallen more deeply into depression, anxiety, um, things that I believe would have altered my path um, and made my path through life much more difficult. So the anger allowed me, it was a, it was a prop, was a crutch. The anger was also useful in becoming an advocate um, for others and engaging in social change um, work organizations and movement building for many, many years. But of course, what is true for myself and any of us is that when we become lost in one emotion above all others, it's like we become a single trick pony, right? And so far, but it doesn't equip you to go through the rest of, you know, to to be able to address so many other um, things in in life that life presents. And um, I needed to deal with my anger because it was as much as it was protection, it also became a liability at a certain point. And for me, what forced me to deal with anger was the moment of September 11th, where there was, you know, huge opened racism toward many brown, black folks at that time, but particularly brown people who looked Middle Eastern. And all the stuff I hadn't dealt with just came to the surface. Um, and I had to, I was forced to go into therapy um, I started meditation. I started uh, body um, mind practices like yoga was one of them. And it took a few years to really go through the process of understanding what role anger had played, um, understanding my own story, being able to grieve. At one point, I went back to the elementary school that I had attended when we first moved from Iran to Canada um, and was able to touch and grieve the child in me that um, had experienced all of what she had experienced. Um, And that was really important. And so now, you know, and it's ongoing work, but now I'm at a point in my life where I can notice the anger when it comes up. And rather than kind of the anger taking over, I can invite her to sit at the table and have a dialogue. What's happening here? And, you know, I think make um, better decisions of how what to do in the, the the situation that I might find myself in. Do I need to put a boundary in place, or can I give? Do I need to actually deal with the anger and come with more empathy? Um, do I need to get more information? And so the anger informs is an informant rather than you know kind of what I would say I did before, which was react sometimes without thinking which is not helpful. 
And I don't think it's helpful in the world we live in because when we react without thinking, we feed the polarization. I don't want to be part of that anymore. I don't think that's helpful. I want to be a bridge, not a you know, one trick pony barking the same message despite the situation or person I'm in front of. Yes, the the phrase that you used in the essay, which I really loved, is using anger as an ally or treating anger as an ally. And I think I'm going to be meditating on that one for a really long time. Yes. And now, of course, you know, just towards the end of the essay, and this is the part that I find really cool, uh, is the fact that your son is the one correcting everybody's mispronunciation of your name, whether it's the parents of other uh, kids or if it's the barista at the cafe, making sure nobody is saying your name wrong. Now, I know you've done a lot of training, a lot of work around inclusivity. You've talked to you know, caretakers, you've talked to um, executives, you name it, you have a long resume. But how does that conversation become a different conversation, maybe more challenging even, when you start to have conversations about the impact of racism and exclusion with your own kids? Because you have two children, and I'm sure they are both very inquisitive. I think children are natural, um, you know, many children come in with natural doses of empathy. And as a parent, it's been so interesting to watch how quickly they pick up. Um, You know what, I think it takes adults a lot longer, like what exclusion looks like, how to step in and look after people in their environment. And if I can, you know, I'd love to just, this is a really short little vignette in the book. Oh, yes, please go ahead. And I'd love to read it because names are important because they're actually the first signal we give to people as to whether we are welcoming them into our orbit. And, um, you know, we talk, you know, even yesterday I was on a national council of a board that I'm working with. And, uh, you know, my name constantly was mispronounced. And I thought to myself, we've just reviewed all the equity policies and strategies that this organization has adopted. And yet, really simple behavioral level, we're not able to, you know, manifest what this looks like in in relationship. Um, So uh, I had to pause and kind of correct um, a couple of times. So I'd love to just read this because I think this is something that we can all do. And it's a really easy behavioral practice to pause and ask somebody what their, how to pronounce their name. And if we can't remember, hey, sorry, I just can't remember. Can you just remind me again? How do I pronounce it? So this one is, this vignette is called Names. It's a furnace of a day, thanks to climate change and this being the peak of summer weather. To cool off, the four of us head over to the local outdoor pool to go swimming. We have to check, it at, check in at reception a couple of makeshift folding tables first. When we finally reach the front of the line, the teenage attendant asks names in a bored, monotone voice with pen poised to record them on the sheet in front of them. I suddenly get an image of immigration lines at ports of entry into this country about a hundred years ago. I always feel a slight tightening inside whenever I'm asked for my name, still. My son, Coda, four years old, declares in a, tr- in a trying to be helpful and sound like an adult tone of voice. My mama's name is Anahid. I know it sounds kind of weird, but that's really her name. I laugh while, while inwardly cringing from the mouth of babes. Not even my own son is exempt from the learned discomfort with names like mine, cultures like mine, ancestry like mine. Anahid is such a common name in Iran, the Middle East, and beyond, but here it bears a stamp of foreigner, outsider, someone to be wary of. 
We enter the change room and the intensive gymnastics of getting swimsuits onto two hyperactive children quickly chases any memory of my own name right, at, right out of my head. Submerging myself in the cool waters of the pool is a welcome relief. I talked to my son later that night. That hurt me a little bit when you said my name was weird. What's different about my name versus Sally or Rachel? It sounds different, he replies. But for who, I ask. I used to go by Anna, but then I realized my real name comes from a place where it represents water and stars, the name of a goddess, a powerful name people used to worship and still do. It was only when I moved here that people bullied and teased me about it. He squeezes my hand and I continue gently. People still get it wrong most of the time, but that's okay because now I choose to use it. I'd like you to use it as well. Okay, Mama, he nods staring at me solemnly, his brown eyes wide and rounded in his small face. Thanks, Baba, I whisper. Time for some hugging. A year later, I arrive to pick up Coda from a playdate, and his friend's mother comes out to greet me. Oh, Anna Heed, she says. I have... She doesn't get any further because Coda comes out and carefully yet confidently interrupts her. Actually, my mom's name is pronounced Anna Heed. I feel a little embarrassed, but also proud. He has overcome his default absorption of the norms around him because of the desire to do better by his mama. As we walk home together, I squeeze his hand in mine, realizing I feel more than pride or momentary self-consciousness. I feel loved. Sometimes at busy coffee counters, I will shorten my name to Anna, just once in a while when the line is long and my time is short. If Coda is with me, though, I can't get away with it. Your name is Anahid he'll admonish, and then loudly correct the barista as well. He has become my name guard, on the lookout for occasions where I may be slighted or minimized through the mispronunciation of my birth title. I relish how my child self is now protected by my own, by my own child, his generation learning from and correcting the erasure mine faced. Names are the first signal as to whether and how much we are welcomed anywhere. My son reminds me that a key measure of belonging will be when all names matter. Uh, that is so powerful. Really, it is. And, you know, I'm just looking at the clock here. And honestly, I probably have about two minutes. So I'm going to ask you a question that, in retrospect, I should have probably asked you right off the top, which is, why did you go with the format that you went with? You've gone with the short essay format. It's short. It's punchy. It's powerful. I love it. But why not just go with a memoir? What is it about this particular format that lends itself to getting the message across to the reader? Well, my first book was a memoir called Breaking the Ocean, a memoir of race, rebellion, and reconciliation. And that plays a particular role. But like you said, I think stories uh, reach people in a different way. And these stories are like the bones in the human body. You know, there's the 10 long, um, longer um, stories that um, each talk to a different relationship of belonging and smaller vignettes in between. And I wanted it to be the book that somebody could pick up, read two pages, um, and think about it, reflect, put it down, and then pick it up two weeks later and read another and perhaps take it into the workplace and share, um, you know, the story, two pages that moved them and open up a conversation. So I think Bones of Belonging, this book is very accessible and relatable for anybody, wherever they're at in their journey, whatever identity they might um, uh, um, have, um, whatever community they find themselves in touches um, like bones. 
Yeah, belonging to anywhere, it's 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 a tricky concept to, to handle. You know, belonging to a group of people or even just a community is a really fundamental concept for a lot of people. Uh, and it's a bit like your bones, really. This is, I think, making an, a reference to the illusion of, of the, uh, the, the title of your book, where bones are really holding up your entire body. And it's a feeling of belonging that a lot of people take for granted, but which I suspect uh, you I, I, and I, as immigrants, most certainly do not take for granted uh, to talk about what those what it is to actually belong to a space and to be part of a community. That's right. Anahid, it was really lovely speaking to you today. Congratulations on the book. It's so well written, uh, and I am still reading through it. I, I try to get through a book at a, a, you know books fairly quickly ahead of the show, but I really had to take some time to think about this one and, and absorb it. So thank you very much for speaking to me today. It was a pleasure having you on the program. My pleasure. That was Anahid Dashgard, who is the co-founder of Anima Leadership, an inclusivity organization in Canada, and the author of Bones of Belonging, a series of short essays talking about the experiences of being a person of color in Canada. I hope you will pick up that book published by Dundurn Press. And folks, we have got to run, but we have a little bit, uh, just a few things to let you know about. Any feedback for the program, write to feedback at ami.ca. Give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget to leave permission to play the audio on the program. You could find us on Twitter as well. Write to Twitter On Twitter, you can find us at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can find me on Twitter at Juita Gupta. Our videographer today has been Matthew McGurk. Mark Aflalo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI Podcasts. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. I've been your host, Juita Gupta. Thanks for listening.